but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. I want to personally apologize to everybody because on the last episode, I set things in motion for Paris and Shenzhen to be terrible because I was so excited and looking forward to both events and naturally the correlation is that they would both disintegrate. <laughs> to be fair, Paris was exciting for much of the week. For, for most of the event, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. Dimitrov making a deep run, two Frenchmen making the quarterfinals, two older, older millennial Frenchmen at that. The final was not that exciting, and we got a retirement in the other semifinal. Mm -hmm. And we got a whole boatload of withdrawals and retirements at the WTA finals. Right after we had talked about how we were looking forward to potentially Osaka and Andrescu in the final or semi-final in Shenzhen, Naomi pulls out the very next day. So it's a long season and these players are beat up and it's, it's really a lot to expect great tennis week in and week out, especially, and we'll get to this later, in the specific conditions that were happening in Shenzhen. In Paris, for Djokovic, he uh, looks very much in control of finishing world number one right now, which didn't look like the case heading into Paris. No, a very good performance from Nadal in Paris and the World Tour Finals would have locked up the number one, the year-end number one ranking for him. And uh, it looks very much in doubt at this point. Only because Nadal is injured. Right. And I think I said retirement earlier. I meant walkover. That semifinal with Shapovalov, Nadal pulled out very soon before the semifinal was to happen with supposedly an abdominal tear, which he's had before. An abdominal tear? What did I... It was just a, a funny pronunciation oh, okay. to me. Maybe that didn't come across to other people, and it's just yet another instance of me being a dick. Yeah, thank you for pointing it out, though. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> I was looking forward to that semifinal with Shapovalov, and it was to start right as I was getting up, which was perfect. Again, one of the reasons why... I said I was looking forward to tennis this last week because it fits so well with my schedule. And I turn on the TV and I see them showing a replay of Dennis playing Mofis. And in that moment, I mean, I was just waking up, maybe it took me five seconds, but I knew exactly what that meant. I was like, oh, rain? Like, nope, indoors. Ah, Nadal was not able to play. Right. He injured himself in practice on that day. And he hasn't ruled out London yet. I think it remains to be seen how serious this tear is or if it's a tear at all. That's what they think it is. He says that he'll be getting, this is from Rafael Plaza, that he'll be getting the full results from the scans tomorrow. So by the time you listen to this, the decision would have been made. And then he will decide if he's going to participate in London. And I'm assuming the idea for making that decision tomorrow is due to the fact that the draw for London is made tomorrow. So it seems that he doesn't want to disrupt the draw if possible. He'll make the decision before. Oh, That's oh, the speculation I see. that I'm seeing. Okay. 
So without too much sort of conjecture, it is still possible for Rafa to finish number one if he does not play London. It's not likely. Novak uh, has to perform poorly by his standards, but I think if Novak reaches the final, he's guaranteed the world number one regardless. And if Rafa does play, it becomes very much more complicated. And why it's unlikely for Novak to not become Euro number one if Nadal doesn't play is because he's playing so well. And what we saw in Paris, despite Novak carrying a cold all week, was some stellar play on court. If you're keeping score at home, that's Masters 1000 title number 34, which leaves him just one behind Nadal's record of 35. Nobody was able to take a set off of Djokovic in Paris. The closest that he came to losing sets were in his run of 32 first-round match against Moutet, winning 7-6-6-4. A similar scoreline against Dimitrov in the semifinals, 7-6-6-4. And he also won a tiebreak set against Kyle Edmund in the round of 16. But straight sets all throughout, culminating in a, a pretty easy beatdown of Shapovalov in the final. He also totally destroyed Stefano Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals, 6-1-6-2. That match was not dissimilar to Berrettini at Wimbledon against Federer. <laughs> you have to keep bringing that up. Yeah, but in the final 65 minutes, Shapovalov was playing so well throughout the week that a lot of us thought he had a, a legit chance to snatch here because Djokovic was, I mean, he was winning all week, but he didn't look infallible. Against Tsitsipas, he did. Well, yes, that's true. And it was a good time to uh, to gather that momentum. It wasn't... I mean, you watch it back, it wasn't a very exciting match. Shapovalov throughout the week was doing things that he doesn't always do. Like, he's been working on blocking back returns. And over the past few months with Mikhail Yuzhny, his new coach, he's been working on, like, not trying to go for return winners off of everything. Because this is something that he is prone to do, right? Take huge swings at every ball and hit a lot of errors. Because he is so powerful. And his strokes can be devastating when they're on. But Eugenie has been credited almost completely with starting to remake Dennis's game and making it more patient and more effective. And that takes a lot of time. Like, they, they may have been working on this for a long, long time and we're just starting to see the results. That's something that Dennis didn't really do well in the final. That kind of change only becomes concrete as a way forward for a player when you start to see results from it. And perhaps... Shapoval winning a couple weeks ago for the first time, his first title, playing this new style of return game would have given him the confidence to say, hey, like this is something that's actually working, that's an actual way forward to me becoming a better player. Shapovalov beat Simon through retirement in the first round, Fonini, Zverev, Monfils, and then getting the walkover over Nadal in the semifinals. Yes, yeah, so there were a lot of interesting things going in, going on on the draw this week. Mofis had a chance to qualify for London if he had beaten Shapovalov. Berrettini would have been knocked out. Gael had to just win one more match. Against Dennis, it was really one-way traffic. It was an incredible display from Dennis of power tennis, of precise power tennis. Mofis at the end of it looked like, well, that was fun. What could I have done? He, how he always is. He's good-natured, but you did get a sense watching it that Dennis was just zoning during that match. It was it was awesome to watch. 
This past week was a testament to Shapovalov's talent, why he's considered by a lot of folks as the best of the young guys. It was tough to see that in spurts, large spurts this year, but he seems to be back on track to the tune of being up to number 15, a career high in the rankings. Had he or Grigor Dimitrov won the tournament, they would have been at number 11, just on the cusp of returning to the top 10 for Grigor and a first top 10 berth for Shapovalov. As it stands, Grigor is just inside the top 20. You noted, I think, via Tumanikarial that Grigor, as much as we thought that he had a horrible year for the most part, started the year just inside the top 20 and finishes the year just inside the top 20, <laughs> due in large part to two big results, the semifinals at the U.S. Open and then again the semifinals in Paris. Right. The year was quite a journey. To be clear, he did fall to number 78 in August, right? It wasn't a straight number 19 to 19. Like a lot of his career is gone, he has bookended very good results with terrible ones. And they were a bit more pronounced this year. He has been dealing with a lot of injuries, but it's cool to see Grigor sort of come out of the fog again and play the kind of tennis you know he can. It's discouraging to watch him play a semifinal against Novak like that again because you feel like he gets so close he gets to a tie break they're toe-to-toe and then something just switch like there's not a a killer instinct something goes off in his brain and you you get the feeling that once he's lost that first set tie break the match is over and i felt that way at the u.s open too one could make the same argument for a certain 34 year old frenchman who played nadal and lost in the quarterfinals very close in the first set Mm -hmm. and once chances were missed in that tiebreak then the 34 year old frenchman went away in the second set right he who shall not be named made a quarterfinal inside the top 30 again the 34 year old frenchman is on his way to reducing his ban on this podcast yes he still hasn't done enough no not not even close there was actually very little separating that gentleman and nadal in the first set of their match it was extremely tight Anyway, I had high hopes for Rafa's performance this week. Of course, you never know what's going to happen had he reached a final versus Djokovic, especially Djokovic in this kind of form. But it would have been cool to have had the opportunity because he he had been playing so well on hardcourt. Something that I've, I've been thinking about the last couple of days, and I haven't done the research, admittedly, to find out how true it is, but I have this general sense that while we have a clear number one and number two on the ATP tour and then Federer just a cusp below, and then this rotating gang at number four. You could make the argument that Dominic Team is your clear number four in the ATP Tour right now. We haven't really seen the top, top guys being, well, obviously Djokovic and Nadal playing for these titles all year. The only time that it happened in the final was Australia, at the Australian Open, where Novak beat Rafa. And then Djokovic, Nadal in the final in Rome, and then the Wimbledon final. I can only think of three tournaments where the top guys contested for the whole enchilada. And so what I'm what I'm getting at is when you have, for whatever reason, be it withdrawal or just a straight up loss or scheduling, when a path has been cleared on the other side of the draw, because Nadal and Djokovic have done a lot of winning this year. When a path has been cleared on the other side, one of those other guys has taken it, right? And I think that has been the entryway for some serious progress this year. 
outside of what a couple weeks ago in what was it shanghai when djokovic and federer lost on the same day it hasn't been these guys really taking out the top guns to get to the final and win the tournament i don't know if that means anything or if that's like a, a black mark on the atp tour or uh, a means of undercutting the success of some of the younger guys be it Tsitsipas or team or or whoever i i think it we're still in a phase on the atp where nadal and djokovic are miles ahead of everybody else i think consistently on a week-to-week basis right and there's some interesting head-to-heads buried in there Tsitsipas having a winning record against djokovic matching up really well there he has wins over all three this year but on a consistent basis like are these younger guys beating the big three to win big titles for the most part no it happens on the wta side those women are beating on each other constantly again i I don't know if that means anything it was just an observation something i was thinking to myself maybe i should do less of that can we talk about denis shapovalov's new haircut He's probably had it for quite a while. I just hadn't paid any attention Mm. whatsoever to it. Must we? Yes, because I think it's slick and it's adult looking. He looks grown up and I think it actually works for him. Yes, it's much more flattering. Is that the best that you can do? By way of paying him a compliment? I don't want to objectify him. Oh, wow. I'm just saying it fits his face well. As opposed to... Yes, correct. The blonde mop. That was like a little boy haircut. This is a grown-up man haircut. And he's playing like a grown man now. Gem's Life? You know, Mofis could not win that match against Shapovalov, but Gem's Life is still peaking, I think. We'll get to this a bit later, but I think Svitolina, despite not winning a title this year, is having a very important year in her career, a very successful year. Mofis is sort of in a Mofisessence, a bit of a renaissance. He came within really like a few points of reaching the uh, ATP finals and I don't mean like points in the match but actual you know race to London points he was not far away he's gonna go to London he says that Elena loves it there so why not he's the second alternate funny how it worked out he was very close to qualifying but since he didn't win that match Roberto Bautista Agut will be the first alternate and if Rafa pulls out Bautista will make the field over in Shenzhen we have the world number one, Ash Barty, winning the title, four point a whole lot, million dollars, and securing the year in number one spot. The first time an Australian woman has ever done so, and in effect, wrapping up player of the year as well. Right. It would be hard to argue against her at this point. Naomi and Bianca had kind of a good shot at it, especially with Naomi surging in the fall, had she had a good performance in Shenzhen, I think it'd be a real conversation. But it's it's quite clear at this point. Ash won titles on all different surfaces. Miami on hard, Roland Garros on clay, Birmingham on grass, and Shenzhen indoors. I don't think there's any competition with respect to this award. I think, like you said, there was some conversation to be had, especially if Osaka had won it. Less so if... Bianca had won it, I think, because she had played so little all year. Okay, sure. But in those tournaments that she had played, she was so dominant. She was beating basically everybody. There, there was, there's something of like an eye test there. 
you know there's an eye test to her being a supreme talent mm. you have to factor in the actual points that are won at this point right ash is some 1900 points better than number two that's not nothing and so even if andrescu had won the the year in finals ash would still be ahead of her by some distance with respect to the, the points and that takes into account the consistency week to week which has to count for something when the big titles are so similar each having won one slam one premier event obviously andrescu would have had the the wta finals under her belt but the consistency that that barty has shown throughout the year is absolutely the deciding factor in my book who would have thought that this would have happened for barty at the start of the year coming into 2019 ranked number 15 She's the first woman since rankings became a thing in the early 70s to finish the previous year outside the top 10 and then ascend to number one the next year. Really? Yes. Martina Hingis didn't do that? No. Hmm, that's interesting. You'll remember she won the title at Zhuhai last year. At the end of last year, had built up a lot of great momentum in the fall, but came into the year never having been to a Grand Slam quarterfinal, did so in Australia at home, and you just see her building throughout the year, winning Miami as a huge surprise, a premier mandatory title, following it up with a, an absolutely shocking victory at Roland Garros. Nobody expected that to be her first Grand Slam title. Birmingham on grass, to be expected. And, and really managing her schedule so smartly, playing 15 tournaments all year after losing at Wimbledon, played only Rogers Cup in Cincinnati. In the fall, she only played... Uh, Wuhan and Beijing after the U.S. Open and then went to Shenzhen. Thoughtful, smart scheduling. Now that she has the luxury of all these ranking points to be, you know, throughout the year a top 10, then a top 5 seed, she didn't have to overplay. She hasn't been overplaying. This has been the way she's run the ship since coming back to tennis. It's been a concerted effort to have a work-life balance that keeps her happy. And I'm most pleased about this success for her in that she's been able to do it this way. On her terms, keeping the pressure at bay as much as possible, not letting the spotlight get to her or, or affect her decision making, not chasing dollars because she can. You know, like if you mm. want to do that, fine. But she says she's out here happy to have a small house and just go home. She has everything she needs. She's a simple girl, according to her. She, mm. do, she doesn't need much. And so she still plays doubles when she wants. She was absolutely not having it when folks were trying to tell her that her doubles play would detract from her singles play. Know that she's a top singles player. Right. That was a, a big topic of discussion in Cincinnati this year. And she said, look, I pick my spots, my team and I sit down and we figure it out. Some weeks I'll play singles, other weeks I won't. I'm not going to overdo it, and I'm going to be very smart about it. And these 15 tournaments, it's not too long ago that folks would have looked at 12 tournaments to 15 tournaments from one of the Williams sisters and said, what are they doing? This is another <laughs> way yeah. in which they've influenced the tour. You can have success picking your spots and being smart about it. You don't have to be Kiki Burtons. You don't have to be Serena Williams. You can be somewhere in between and have success. Right. And those three players are all top 10 players mm -hmm. who manage their schedules very, very differently. I remember seeing Ash over the summer in Cincinnati and playing 
okay, playing pretty well, but not panicking about where her game was at on hard court. And I remember seeing her in press and saying, this is not a panic station. Okay. I saw a bit of a discussion on Twitter about why is Ash Barty disliked by so many or some slash not given the due that she deserves. She's unproblematic. She's humble. She wins. She's got a big game. She's got variety. What more do you need in a player? And credit Noel Harmony, uh, Twitter Mutual, who said, well, listen, her tennis and personality don't dazzle them. Ash Barty appears to be a hard worker, kind and humble. She gives credit to her team and praises her opponents. I think she'd rather be these things than be the big and bold star many crave from a number one player. I think there's a lot of truth in that. You've got another perspective. Yeah, I came across another tweet that made me cackle. I didn't. I don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but it was true and funny. By uh, someone named Fib, at Phibby Spears, P-H-I-B-I. Barty is generally successful at what she does and isn't pointlessly combative with others around her. So essentially unrelatable to TT in general. TT being tennis Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and really, when you said she's unproblematic and she's humble, those are two marks against her. Really. Right. Right? Like, that makes her less interesting to a lot of people. Like, I do understand if you're not immediately engaged by her, because she says openly to the media, like, I'm here to play my part and give you what you need, but I'm not that interested in being a superstar. I'm not going to be giving you information about Vika Azarenko and her personal life. I'm not doing that. Definitely not. She's I'm not, not going to tell you about Casey Delacqua's nope. kids. Ask me about the tennis, what we're doing here, what's required of my job, and let's get this done. So if you don't feel like her sound bites are that interesting, I it's fine. I totally get it. But Ash likes to do her speaking on court. I actually think her game is pretty cool. I like watching her game a I lot. feel like a lot of people don't find her game cool because not only do they need somebody who is pointlessly combative, <laughs> they need somebody who is pointlessly powerful on court mm. as well. And Ash does pack a lot of power, but it's used selectively. Not everyone responds to the backhand slices, which she uses a lot and way more than we're accustomed to in this era of tennis. I'm just happy that she was able to solidify her season as great as it was already with this icing on the cake, for her to be the irrefutable number one, have nobody out here being able to say, like, what is this mess? You know, right. like, Ash Barty's number one, she's earned it, she's won big titles, yes, she's outperformed everybody's expectations, including her own, this is where we are, it's an incredible story, and I happen to think that she's an absolute credit to, to tennis. Now, Miss... Elena Svitolina came perilously close to repeating as year-end WTA Finals champion. Yeah, watch those adverbs. There was a lot of judgment in perilously. <laughs> <laughs> no, throughout the week, I fully expected Svitolina to win this tournament. I was actually a bit surprised that she didn't. I think you actually took flight in those ideas once I told you. Oh, where really? Where the stage in wow. our relationship where... I tell you things and then you present them to me as brand new. <laughs> For example, like the other day when you came, you said to me right before bed, you're like, oh, did you see this hilarious video that uh, I, I retweeted? Okay, this was funny. 
<laughs> did you see this hilarious video that I retweeted earlier today? And I said to you, you mean the video that I DM'd you and you <laughs> never responded to, to me about that one? Is that the one you're talking about? So, yes, I did tell you earlier in the week that I thought uh, yeah. Svidalina was going to win this tournament. To be fair, I did not read your message. I found that tweet on my own. Oh, so you claim. So you say. <laughs> I don't know which is worse. You're just out here pilfering things without accreditation all over the place. Yes. But it's you, so it's fine. <sighs> so Svidalina absolutely bodies her round-robin stage. She had a tough group. On paper, it was a very tough group. Pliskova, Halep, Andreescu. And after Andreescu pulled out, Kenin filled in. You could argue dodged a bullet there. But Andreescu was obviously physically compromised. Beat Pliskova, beat Simona, and then knocked out Sofia Kennan, who played her heart out coming over from Zhuhai, taking that replacement spot, which is kind of a thankless job because you only get to play one match. In that situation, there was really no chance that she was going to qualify. And Andreescu officially withdrew at the last minute. Like she retired from her previous match, but she didn't officially announce that she was going to withdraw from the tournament until the next day. Svitolina was asked in press basically why she tried so hard in what was essentially a dead rubber in the round robin stage against Kennan. Every year and, we have this situation, right. this scenario. Every year. What was it? Halep against Simo- Halep against Serena Ooh, that one year that Halep, was... Yes. Halep could have thrown a match in her round robin mm-hmm. that would have sealed... It would have sealed Serena's fate, essentially, right? Right. It would have knocked out Serena. And she didn't. And at the time, I thought it showed a lot of integrity. A lot of people thought it showed stupidity, which I get. But you always you get these weird situations in round-robin formats. Like, they always come up. But Alina's response was, I thought, very, just very professional and very refreshing. And she said, like, this is just not the, the kind of competitor I am. Like, I'm going to go out there and try because my mom and my grandma will be really upset if I don't. <laughs> Which is very important. It is really like a life lesson. Don't make your grandma mad. If you're lucky enough to have a grandma, don't make her upset. Don't disappoint her. There's also the matter of hundreds of thousands of dollars at play. Right. There's that not so small matter as well. Of course. I'm sure she thought, well, if I can win this tournament as an undefeated champion, look at all this money I can make. It's like no small feat. And if I can try hard for this last round robin match and beat Kennan... Uh, you're creating the opportunities for success for yourself. But in in a larger sense, you're a professional athlete. You go out there to do a good job. But she is the type of player who wants to do her best on every occasion. And in this tournament, defending, I think she felt, you know, maybe I have a point to prove because I didn't win a, a title this year. And over the past two or three seasons, I've won a whole shitload of titles. As cliched as it sounds, this is a job. And it was cool to to watch her go out there and perform professionally. Hmm. Like, this is a job, and I have self-respect, and I want to do a good job. Like, when it's cool when people go out there and do their job and not blame injury on their losses. That's cool as well? <laughs> what are you referring to? I'm referring to Miss Karolina Pliskova throwing all kinds of shade yes. against Bianca Andreescu. You know, Karolina is so weird. Because a lot of people praise her for being no bullshit, very straightforward. And she is definitely that. She is straightforward. But she's also, like, very rude, in my in, humble opinion. In, in your opinion. Yes, in your opinion. Right. Because she was basically complimenting Simona Halep. 
like the the discussion was about Simona, but she found a way to insult other people in a backhanded manner. It was a, a an expert level pivot. She was asked to to say what she likes so much about Simona Halep, right? I don't have the exact quote, but it was to the effect of, you know, I have a great respect for Simona. She's this, she's that, she's that. And she also doesn't make excuses with a whole bunch of injuries for losing. Like, that was not necessary no. at the end of that statement. And it was also, um, like, not 100% true. Clearly, she had an axe to grind against specific players or player singular. She lost the plot because Simona actually does occasionally do that. No shade at Simona. Maybe not the best example. On that note, we do have to talk about the many retirements that happened this week. We saw four players withdraw or retire. Osaka withdrawing after beating Petra Gvidova in her first round. Kiki Burtons replaces Osaka. Andreescu hurt her knee against Pliskova and retired from the match. Withdrew from the actual tournament the day after that. And Sofia Kennan replaced her. The Andreescu thing was wild. Because she saw the trainer, she spoke with her coach, Sylvain Bruno, and she even said that she heard something crack or pop, but she was insisting that she wanted to keep on playing. And at that point, you need to have people around you to tell you, girl, you need to stop. Because Bianca has had a lot of alarming injuries for a young player, and it seems like she has this tendency to want to push through the pain. And I really hope that she has people around her that care enough to say, you need to stop this. Like, you need to take care of your body. And if something hurts really bad and you hear a pop, you need to stop. I don't care what tournament it is. Because this could have far-reaching consequences. That's just my editorial side note there. Kiki Burtons, who replaced Osaka, beat Ash Barty in her first match, and then retired in her second match versus Belinda Bencic. Burtons, you might remember, reached the final last week in Zhuhai and then came over and subbed in in her 28th tournament of the year in Shenzhen. Bencic retired down 1-4 in the third set of her semifinal versus Vitalina. So, what a lot of people were talking about this week, including Belinda Bencic, who had to retire in the semis, is the surface. A lot of criticisms flying about this slow, sticky, hardcore surface. It's something we talk about every year. Somehow, miraculously, two years ago, Venus Williams made the final, losing to Wozniacki, beating players on that surface that just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. It is not an overstatement to say that this, this surface is absolute trash and has no business to be what's determining the winner of the year-end WTA championship. Like after all these yeah. women have gone through throughout the entire year, the long, arduous, grueling tennis season, to then have to come and put up with this shit? <laughs> and so I put this out there earlier this week on Twitter because I want to understand which stakeholders are pulling for this type of surface. Because obviously, somebody wants this. And I got a lot of great responses, which I appreciate. There seems to be this idea that long rallies are what what provides entertainment value to women's tennis. And I don't necessarily know that that's the case. We saw a lot of surface upheaval at the end of the 90s and early 2000s, but was only driven by the men's game, right? The men's game was becoming dominated by serve bots. It was boring. Nobody wanted to sit through these matches. 
And so surfaces started to slow. But women's tennis was always an afterthought in that. Because women's tennis was actually doing quite fine. Possibly the best it has ever been in the late 90s and early 2000s. So now we get to a point where we're putting the WTA finals on this dreadfully slow hard court indoors. Indoor tennis is typically supposed to be fast, like lightning fast. And I have to, I just wonder like, who wants this? I wonder who has actual control over the surface. Do we know for sure that the WTA has actual control over it? Or is it outsourced to some company who signed a contract in Shenzhen to host this event? Right. And Steve Simon said there's consultations with all sorts of people and players and the tournament hosts and sponsors and TV, like experts on tennis surfaces. <laughs> like he says there's this huge process that goes into deciding what type of surface to use. But in light of all this criticism, he expects they'll have a faster court next year. I don't know what expects means. Like, are you going to have it or not? There's a contract somewhere. And I guarantee well, yeah. you that that has something to do with it. Right. But it's a field of eight. It expanded to a field of 10, but you had four withdrawals or retirements from this tournament that's supposed to showcase the best of the best of your sport. What are you doing to these women? And I know this sounds harsh, but I feel that these players were set up to fail. You invest 14 something million dollars in this tournament, the biggest prize money that the WTA has ever seen, the biggest prize money for a champion tennis has ever seen. And this is what we get. Like, you have to do better than that. So you have, the money is right. You got the money right. But you forgot about the tennis part. And it's really, it's extremely disappointing to me. Let's pivot and talk about this article by Stuart Miller for the New York Times that tells us about a WTA legacy fund. This is something I had not heard about before. Right. For the first few decades of the WTA tour, the players didn't have anything like a pension fund or a retirement fund, uh, because the tour was new, money was tight. The WTA did set up a pension fund in 1991, but for those players who had been toiling on the tour and winning throughout the first two decades, they didn't have anything. And so a lot of these great players retired with very little money to their names. Martina Navratilova was just saying in a WTA video that many players had to retire in their late 20s and sort of get real and get a job. Because if you were outside of the top 10, it was very difficult to make a good living. So a group of players have been negotiating with the WTA, with Steve Simon. And I think it's important that we name those players because they're people that you don't get to hear about a lot. So this group is Pam Teagarden, Paula Smith, Pam Austin, Trish Bostrom, Cynthia Dorner, Barbara Jordan, and Julie Heldman. This group has been lobbying to get WTA players from the 70s and 80s, some sort of, if not pension fund, what they're now calling a legacy fund. Steve Simon said that a pension was kind of untenable at this point to go back and do that, but they worked towards setting up a legacy fund whereby the WTA contributed $1.25 million, and then this group of women would decide how it would be divvied up, essentially. Right. So, well, that's not true. They would decide who would be eligible, and then the WTA and Simon. I keep, keep wanting to say Simon. Steve Simon then said, well, we're going to distribute it evenly. Yes. So at this point, around 250 players will receive a one-time payment of $5,000, which is not a lot. But at this point, it's better than nothing. The plan now is for this group to lobby the four Grand Slam tournaments to match the WTA's donation, which in a perfect world would yield each player $25,000. 
Like if each of these slams going forward sets out $1.25 million per event, which is chump change, really, and these women then get an extra $20,000 a year, that is something. And right. let's face it, these, these big tournaments were built on the backs of these women as well. It's it's not just the high profile winners, the Billie Jean Kings, the Everts, Navratilovas in the in the seventies and eighties, or the Graf Celis into the turn of the nineties that built the WTA tour. It's all the players who made those draws deep and viable, those tournaments and events viable that lead to these tournaments being what they are today. Because Martina Navratilova tells us all the time that the actual WTA Tour was much more lucrative in the early days of the WTA Tour for the players than the actual slams themselves. Yes. And so these players eventually helped build the profile of these tournaments to where the the federations that collect all the money from sponsorship and entry fees are profiting at, at a record pace that's growing exponentially in the last 10 years. There's no reason why these federations can't come to the table and pay it back. Right. The Grand Slams are also in the midst of a lot of pressure by active players to increase the proportion of prize money that they're paying versus revenue. They have not come to the table on that. Trish Bostrom, who's one of this group, said she had a very discouraging conversation with president of the USTA, Patrick Galbraith, this year, who allegedly told her that the slams were not inclined to help. I think it it would be easy for the slams to say, this is not our problem, the WTA should have been looking after you for many years. They can say that, that doesn't make it right. But look at how much money these tournaments and organizations put into advertising alone. It's much more than $1.25 million. The money that's spent on advertising alone, you could build that into your marketing budget and tie that into the history of the sport, get some really good social media exposure that benefits uh, the slams, the tour, the players who get this kickback now, and also help to build the sport and educate people. There's, there's such good opportunity here to blend the past with the present and benefit everybody. It seems pretty seamless to me. It seems like a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you consider that the WTA is out here telling everybody how much money is being paid out in Shenzhen this year, that is the largest pot in the history of all tennis. Kudos for that $1.25 million, but let's not have it be a one-time thing. There is obviously a way to have this with everybody working together continue to benefit and help folks who, who got us to where we are. Now, let's be glad that there is a pension fund now in the WTA because it wouldn't have to be this huge one-time investment of liquid cash. You know, you can build it up slowly. It's going to gain value, whatever, whatever. Look, this is something that Sloan and Madison and the new appointees to the WTA Council could work on as well. There's no reason why they can't take this up as a, a lobbying issue as well. Right, right. And the WTA did launch a series of videos about uh, prize money, equality, the history of the women's tour under the banner of it takes equality, right? It takes four different things. <laughs> Commitment, oh, passion, right, right determination all these things using the it takes hashtag and it was hit and miss in my opinion 
there was a lot of interesting tidbits from older players. There were also a lot of there was also a lot of kind of corporate marketing speak in there. Mm. But it is important to get that story of the original line told by Billie Jean King and the other eight players and codified into your brand. Right, because the WTA, unlike almost any sporting organization in the world, has this incredibly rich history of being trailblazers, as being the first to do what they did, as being a, a touchstone moment in Western feminism. Like, there is such an incredibly rich story to be told about the WTA. And it is told in in bits. It's told choppily. Like, yeah. it's told in fits and starts. But where, you know, who's writing the official history of the WTA? Like, where where can tennis players and tennis fans sort of access the the story and what will eventually be myth of what happened when you get these four videos and you watch them back to back to back to back it's illuminating it works you you sit there you watch it and you're like well wow this is some good stuff but when it's released sporadically over the course of months you end up getting the fourth installment this time around in conjunction with the wta finals as this kind of wow moment that the women are now making this much money, they're pay- they're playing for the biggest pot in tennis history. We've come a long way, baby, right? But we don't know where we've come from with this standalone right. video. And so when you watch it by itself, you have these current day players, for the most part, talking about how great it is to win so much money now because of all the ways in which tennis is expensive. And some of them hearken to the trailblazers, but you don't get all that context from that one video. And so without all of them together, it's it's lacking. Yeah. It, you know, I watched that video by itself and I said, wow, this is very dull, <laughs> right? Because you've asked active players to talk about how great it is to win all this prize money. What, what are you, what are you going to mine from that? And so I understand that the WTA is a corporation but are you going to wade into the inequity that still exists in tennis? Um, are you going to kind of bring in any cultural and political reasons that women had to fight so hard in the first place? Like, we know that Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals and Julie Heldman and all these other women had to sacrifice a lot to be professional tennis players. But why? And, the, and and do women still have to sacrifice? Or why did the fight have to happen in the, the first place? Like, what was the context? And the pot at the end of the rainbow is not Ash Barty winning $4.25 million. Amazing. What a, what a moment. Like, that's not it. That's great. You, you know, women athletes should be winning that kind of money. But, like, there's more than prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel for just a select few. Right. Because we know on many levels that there is paid disparity between both tours. That's an ongoing issue. And just like on the men's tour where the players below a certain level aren't doing well enough to make a sustained living, the women are are dealing with the same problems. And so when I see this kind of, what do you call it? This glamorous, celebratory, masturbatory event at the end of the year with this $4.25 million first prize, the largesse and the excess of it is somewhat distasteful to me when so many people are struggling. We should mention, it's not on the agenda, but Barbara Streetseva finished the year as the doubles number one. She secured it after reaching the final 
with Sue Weishia. And, you know, this year saw Streetsville reach her best stage in a major at the semifinals at Wimbledon. Had an excellent year in doubles. Uh, congratulations to Bara, who said this might be her final year. Probably not at this point. Why would you go out? <laughs> you know, as Shenji is the solo number one, not paired with anyone. Someone who has called it quits is Mariana Alves, who retires from umpiring to take up a permanent role as a WTA supervisor. Apparently she had been doing both roles for mm-hmm. a little while, and she's no longer going to be in the chair. She is a trailblazer. It is her incredible inaccuracy that led to Hawkeye being <laughs> a part of tennis. You are such a mess. I'm just saying. It no, is... it's, it's true. It is a, an unfortunate part of her legacy, but obviously she... Uh, was competent enough at her job that she has survived that you know that was a terrible incident but she has survived and thrived as an umpire since then she was a new green umpire at the time and unless you feel like it was targeted it's unfortunate that an umpire should have to go through something like that because you'd you'd like to assume that it was not right personal that it was it was a series of mistakes and the the outcome was that tennis was changed fundamentally mm-hmm. forever. And you go back and you watch that video of those calls, and it is it is absolutely shocking. Mm-hmm. It's one of the more clear-cut, unreal things that you will watch in terms of a player being aggrieved. Right. But kudos to her for having a long career and making and overcoming it. Yeah. And I think we can say that the real oppressor in that situation was jennifer capriotti <laughs> going i was i was actually a fan at that time but going back and looking at it you can see that she was very unsporting in that match raymond sluter and kiki burtons have split they Co- have coaching carousel continues it seems to be uh mutual david vakin gave kind of a play-by-play on twitter as to how it all happened he is the dutch tennis person who knows everything Like, if you need to know anything that's going on with Kiki Burton's, hit him up because he's on that beat. And it happened over the the span of about a month or so, month, two months, where they said, hey, let's take a a minute here to think about it. Let's let's have a call in like two weeks. Let's think about, let's follow up again in another month. And then it, it came to pass that they were like, yeah, this is a good time to stop. It sounds all very grown up. Something that does not sound grown up. No. You know, tennis Twitter just loves this shit. It was uh, my, for the first day of the offseason on the WTA Tour, it was it was the kind of tea that, that you need and like to drink. In a sense, it's something that's been going on for a while because we've seen Kamal Mori referred to as Taylor Townsend's coach for a while this year. We've right. seen it a lot and we're like, well, that's that's not true, is it? And so Taylor Townsend makes an Instagram post where she shows a screenshot of an Illinois mini conference scheduled for November 17th. It starts at 8 a.m. with registration and coffee and rolls. Are you really reading the whole itinerary? And then the seminars go from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. (laughs) And registration is $30. In the 11.30 a.m. slot, Kamal Mori, who is listed as the coach of Sloan Stevens and Taylor Townsend, Sloan spelled S-L-O-A-N. <laughs> and it's entitled Dealing with Top College Player, singular, and Dealing with Pros. 
the I mean the proofreading on this program is just wild. It's legendary. And so what Miss Townsend says, if you know me, then you know that this is not something that I would normally do. But I feel that it's time to set the record straight about Chicago's Kamaomori of XS Tennis Academy. I can no longer remain silent while he continues to deceive professional players, aspiring players, sponsors, and the tennis community by misrepresenting himself and taking credit for things he has not done. She adds Monica Puig and says she is a recent victim of his deception. Wow. I started my tennis with Donald Young Sr. and Ilona Young, who taught me to play tennis from four years old and assisted in me being number one in junior in the world. From 2010 to August 2013, I trained at the USDA under the instruction of Catherine Rinaldi and briefly Juan Tadero. Zena Garrison was my primary coach from September 2013 to March 2015. Zena brought Kamau on board as an assistant coach during that time. I did not go public in the past because I had hoped to resolve this matter directly with Kamau Murray. I will no longer remain silent while he continues his lies and false advertisement. I did not give Kamau consent to use my name and likeness for his ongoing personal and business monetary gain. Kamau is currently stating that he is my coach in promotion of the upcoming USPTA Illinois mini-conference on November 17th, 2019, held at XS Athletic Club. At 8.30. Starts at 8.30. His latest actions have prompted me to expose his past and ongoing pattern of deceit. If you are a fan of mine, please support me and have my back regarding this matter. In doing this, I am clearing my conscience and telling another piece of my story. Thank you so much. I love you guys. What? I gotta tell you, I took my glasses off for this one. Somebody sent this to me on the train this morning, and I could not believe my eyes. Because I expected, I saw a Taylor Townsend post about Kamau, and I'm like, oh, she's probably gonna, you know, post something in support of the Academy. Kamau always seems to be doing good things in Chicago. Whatever. This took me out. This is calling him... I mean, she called him a liar. A, what do you call it? A snakesman? A snake oilsman? A An oil snakesman? Wow. A what? Wow. Pause. A snake oil salesman. A snake oil that's, salesman. That's the phrase, yeah. Uh, uh, a hustler? A huckster? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Huckster is a word, too? Yeah, that is a word. Yeah. All I those mean, things. To be clear, she did not call him that, but those are like in keeping with the tone she of... used official words like deception <laughs> and deceit and deceiver but i have to wonder in like in the context of all this but like is she going to get a, a libel suit thrown at her for what she said this was an allegation and a half yes the gauntlet has been thrown i do have to wonder how sloan and taylor's relationship is like are they they might still be totally cool this may not bother Sloan at all. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, they're close. Like, they're tight, right? They did that Insta story live together. They seem like they're friends. Sloan may be aware if it's true. And I know. be like, Sloan listen, be like- this is good for my brand and my career. Like, we work well together. I need this. Right. Let him handle his business. I don't care if he's lying on all of you. But I'm up here in Toronto. I'm trying to live my best life on my condo balcony. As long as he's not lying on me, <laughs> then I'm good. My bag is secured, and you're not lying on me. Like, that's that's okay. And, I mean, I'm just so happy that Taylor's going to get direct entry into Australia, and she's going to get her back. 
No, but really, what's going on with the constant referring to him as coach of Taylor Townsend? Yeah, that is that is odd. It's weird. Because you always see the Youngs with her. Mr. and Mrs. Young are always with her. He was they were there at the US Open. And she's saying here he was only an assistant coach for a while under Xena. Right. That's what she's saying here. And she's saying, I've tried to to rectify this. I don't have to load up his business in these streets. But and I can no longer do that because I'm making no progress. But is there more? Like there has to be more than just that, right? And to be calling Monica Puig into this. <laughs> Monica Puig, who who responded to the post, right? <laughs> yes, Miss Puig responded with a simple red heart. <laughs> Monica has already spoken her truth in Spanish, uh, so we know where she stands. That is something to look forward I'm to in twenty twenty. Like... I, I welcome this drama. To be, to be clear, the WTA season is technically still going on because Fed Cup hasn't happened yet. But it really, it's like the day after the finals and tennis Twitter needs some drama. Like, we we cannot sustain without it. Apparently. What, what are we, p- perpetually aggressive? Aggrieved? No, no, the, the thing to describe why Ash Barty is not Oh, palatable. yes. We can't be out here not being pointlessly combative. What is the point? <laughs> The last thing before we close, shout out to Raquel Atawa, who is a an accomplished American doubles player who has called time on her career as well. She's leaving the tour behind to take up a coaching position at UCLA to work with her mentor as an assistant coach with the goal of becoming a tennis coach in the rest of her career. You may remember her as Raquel Cops Jones. That was her name previously before getting married. Also, Kim Kleisters is injured. She just announced today that she is recovering from an injury and will not be able to begin her comeback in January as planned. But right. she's still fully committed to coming back to quote the game that she loves. Sliding on hard courts again. Strikes again. If you missed last episode, we kind of semi-announced the fact that we'll be doing a GoFundMe in the not-too-distant future sometime in November. You have recently acquired uh, a, a prize of sorts that we can use in this GoFundMe process. Yes. So we're very serious about only promising things that we have the capacity to deliver. So we have some prizes. Uh, we have some, basically we have some goals, things that we would like to do within the next year. If you are kind enough to donate, we'd like to upgrade our equipment. We'd like to travel to a few more tournaments. And definitely one overseas. And generally, like, this is money to invest in the podcast to to give us the time and the resources to do the type of research that we want to do. Mm-hmm. One of the prizes will actually be a tennis ball signed by Bianca Andreescu at the Rogers Cup. And it comes with a certificate of authenticity. Again, we'll be launching that within the next few weeks. We thank everyone for your support of the podcast so far, and reviews and your downloads. And hopefully this will uh, open up sort of the next frontier for the body serve. Thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at the body serve on Twitter and Instagram. We're available on iTunes and Spotify and all your typical podcast apps. Leave us a review if you're so inclined. And thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.